Our scripture reading today is the 15th chapter of the book of Isaiah. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Because Ar of Moab is laid at waste in night, Moab is undone. Because Kerr of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and, and to Dibon, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Elial cry out. Their voices heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zor, to Eglath-Shelishiah. For the ascent of Luth, they grew, go up weeping. On the road to Horn, Hornium, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are desolation. The grass is withered, the vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up they will carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglium. Her wailing reaches to Berlium. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood. For I will bring up Dibon even more, a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of their land. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. So what do you do when stress or uncertainty creeps in? I mean, we've all been there, right? Right? I mean, I, who, raise your hands, you've never been stressed before in your entire life. Mike, yeah, sure. Sure. You've got how many kids? <laughs> Think about this. The, you know, the car breaks down unexpectedly. You lose your job. A parent or a child or a spouse dies without warning. You get scolded by your boss. You don't have the money to pay your bills. You have a fast approaching deadline for a class or, a, or for an assignment for your job. And the list goes on. You can already see that some of you are already getting stressed out just by hearing this list. So how do you handle the stress? How do you handle it? How do you handle the uncertainty? Not knowing what's going to happen. Maybe you stay up worrying late at night. Maybe you sink into anxiety. Maybe along with those things, like me, you begin to scheme and devise. Uh, you begin to scheme and devise backup plans and backup plans to your backup plans just to make sure everything keeps going. Or maybe you get angry and take out your stress on those around you. What if the stress or uncertainty we face relates to promises of God? Abraham and Sarah had been given a promise. 
they would have as many offspring as the sands of the sea and as the stars of the sky. The offspring, as we found out, would not come through nephew's lot, or they would not come through Abraham's nephew lot. Wow. Anyway, they would not come through Abraham's nephew lot or through his servant Eliezer. The possibilities seemed to shrink as they examined what resources they had um, to find fulfillment in this promise. You can imagine they were very stressed, anxious about the uncertainty of their future. As we see, as we'll see by the end of this chapter, it's been 11 years since the promise was originally given. How would they respond to this? How would they respond to this anxiety, this, this pressure, this uncertainty? Let's read this chapter and then we'll dive into the text together. Chapter 16 of Genesis, of the book of Genesis says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked, up with, con she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, and it lies between Kadesh and, and, uh, and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that as we look at this text, that you would see there's a contrast between how we ought to respond to unknown situations, to the uncertainties of life. That one way is to respond by manipulating the situation, trying to plan and scheme. The other way, Lord, is to trust you. 
I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the difference here and to help us to understand. And Lord, guide us and direct us to trust you. Praise in your name. Amen. We see, first of all, this morning that weak faith resorts to manipulation. Weak faith resorts to manipulation. As we've been seeing these stories about Abraham, and many of the stories throughout Genesis so far have been designed in a way, they're, they're telling about true events, but to the reader it is describing how we ought to respond and what our faith ought to look like. And here we, and most of the time, we have examples of weak faith, therefore showing us the opposite is how we have strong faith. We hear, see here that weak faith resorts to manipulation. The text opens up with a, with a, with a problem, right? We had just seen in Genesis chapter 15, God had given this promise once again to Abram. He said, you are going to have as many children as the stars in the sky. If you could count the stars, you could number the amount of offspring you're going to have. Right? And now Abram has been given this promise. It was, it was even uh, uh, brought into, or, or, or um, it was promised and it was given, given this certainty of the promise uh, by the special sacrifice that took place in Genesis 15. And here we now have in Genesis 16, the same problem that we've already known about is repeated. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. There's a problem with this promise so far, it seems, at least to Abram and Sarai. She doesn't have any kids. How in the world is their offspring going to number the sands of the sea, going to number the stars of the sky? She still has no kids. And as we see at the end of the chapter, he's 86 years old. He was 75 when he was given the first promise. Now he's 86. They still don't have any kids. How is this going to happen? How is all this going to take place? Well, we see how Sarai responds to this. Notice what she does. She had a female uh, Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now think about this for a second. Where would she have gotten a female Egyptian servant from? Egypt, right? Remember Genesis chapter 12 when... Abram left the promised land because of the famine. Instead of trusting the Lord, went to Egypt, and there he acquired great wealth and many servants. Hagar probably came from that point in time. This is already a problematic time in Abram's life, and now we see uh, Hagar, who's probably there with them because of this. Uh, We see this uh, all, all starting to come up and kind of look kind of suspicious in the first place. Sarai says to Abram, verse two, behold now, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It's a pretty odd request. Wives, think about this request for a second. Well, I don't have any children, so why don't you just take my employee, right, and have children by her, and then maybe I can have children by that person. You can already see, Sarah, this, this logic is not so airtight as you might think it is. Now, let's be fair. In the ancient Near East, culturally, this would have been appropriate, right? In the, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, now again, let's distinguish between culturally appropriate and in God's eyes appropriate, okay? According to the culture, that would have been appropriate. 
that if you didn't have an heir, you could have, you, you could, you could have a child through, oh, through one of the female servants, and that could be a child for your wife, and so on and so forth. So culturally, there's, this seems to make a lot of sense. So in Sarah's mind, right, remember, Lot's not there anymore. They can't have, uh, the, you know, they're not going to have an heir through Lot. They're not going to have an heir through Eliezer. So in her mind, she's thinking, maybe this is what God has in mind, right? I don't, still don't have any kids. Maybe this is it. We've got to fulfill God's promise somehow. We've got to take it on ourselves. We've got to do it. We've got to, get this to ha- make this happen. So why don't we try this as the way to do it? And Abraham says, all right. Sounds like a plan. Let's do that. This already sounds pretty fishy, right? It's kind of a weird situation. Think of Abraham, right? This guy, this great man of faith. And here he is trying to manipulate the situation to try to get, make, it, make it work out. Now we could liken this, this uh, thinking about this, this custom in the ancient Near East, you could maybe liken it to maybe uh, uh, in, our, in our current law system, right? It might be acceptable to go ahead and get a divorce. So your wife makes you mad, right? And you say, well, you know, I'm just so, I'm done with her. I'm going to go ahead and divorce her. Right? And that might be acceptable. You could go to a lawyer and they'd say, all right, that's your reason. All right, cool, whatever. I mean, I don't know if it's that easy. I don't have any idea. I'm not certain. I've got no interest in researching how to go ahead and get divorced anyway. But uh, let's say that was the case. And we both said, yeah, sure. Let's go ahead and end the marriage. And, and that was the case, right? Culturally, sure. In fact, you'd probably have 1,500 of your friends on Facebook say, oh, you know, it's great. You know, you guys just weren't meant for each other. It's all right. You know, uh, that's, all, that's all well and good. But is that appropriate in God's sight? Well, she just made me mad. So I was like, you know what? We're just not meant to be together. Because obviously, if we're meant to be together, everything would just be a bed of roses and nothing would ever, nothing real problems would ever happen. Amen, right? No. Right? Anybody who's been married for any, any longer than a year knows that the honeymoon does eventually end. Well, what's the point of marriage? Right? What, is, what is God's intention for marriage is for it to stay together. Keep going. Even through the hard times. Culturally, it might be acceptable. So this is, this is kind of a similar situation here. Um, it would be much better to seek forgiveness in, in our own situation. And here, uh, it, what and we, we can find out, we'll see in the text, exactly what they should have done. But no, let's look at this. So, so she's trying to manipulate the situation. Abraham goes ahead and does it. But let's look back again at what, Abraham, what, what Sarai actually says. Sarai says to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She blames all of her problems on God. Now, partially, she's right, right? I mean, God still hadn't given them a kid. It was still not his will to give them their child yet. But her, in her mind, you kind of get this tone from her that she's saying, God is to blame for the reason this hasn't happened. We've got to fix, we've got to do this for him. He's not filling his promise. We've got to fix it, right? So she blames God, just like Adam did in the garden. The woman you gave me, Lord, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Just like Adam blamed, Adam blamed Eve and then Eve blamed the serpent. So here we have Sarai blaming God for, what, for the misfortune that has come upon her. She says it's God's fault that he hasn't fulfilled the promise yet. And then 
Abram, it says, Abram listened. Uh, it says, uh, uh, the end of verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This word listened is the same word as, is similar to the word for obeyed. He obeyed the voice of his wife. Amen, ladies? Just kidding. Now think about this. Back in Genesis, back at the fall, what did Adam do? Eve handed him fruit, and he obeyed his wife and partook of the fruit, and that's what caused the fall. You have these parallels of what's going on, this, this action that they are taking parallels the very narrative of the fall. Saying what, what Eve has done, what, Adam, what, what Eve and Adam did is the same thing that Sarah and Abraham are doing, already kind of showing this is not exactly the way you should have gone about this. This is not, there's all sorts of hints here in the text that are showing that this is not how things should have gone down. These parallels hint that they overstepped a boundary. They, they went too far. That faith should have taken them a different direction despite what their culture taught. Faith should have taken them a completely different direction, but yet they overstepped this boundary. Then we come to the text and we see that there's more tension arises. All this tension takes place. Look at what happens in the text here. So, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram to be a husband, to be her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Well, that's interesting. That's a, that's a say that would cause some tension, right? Now that she's pregnant, what is she doing? Nah, 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 nah. I got pregnant and you didn't. I am carrying the son. How cool am I? Right? She's got a little bit of an arrogance here. Another way you could translate this is the first, the, this word can also be translated as despised. She despised Sarah. She treated Sarah rudely, with a lack of respect, with with amount of with an amount of pride along with this. Their plan went sour when Hagar brought tension. As soon as she brought tension into the into the situation, what does Sarah do? The situation's not okay. It was your plan in the first place, Sarah. I really. Right? She's the one that said, yeah, go ahead and do this. And then when it all goes sour, look who she does. She blames Abram. You got her pregnant. Isn't that what you wanted me to do? <laughs> Come on now. This is such a weird, this, this situation is so bizarre, right? But all this tension, it brings tension to their marriage. It brings tension to their relationship with God. Now it seems that it will be much more difficult for God's promise of blessing to be fulfilled. Now that this has taken place, as you're reading this, you're like, man, this is just all unraveling. How in the world is God going to bring blessing out of this situation? Right? It just seems like everything is coming apart. Then again, Sarah jumps in. Right? In comes Sarah with her own plan once again. She says, all right, I know how to fix this. Kick her out. Get rid of her. Really? That's the way to solve the tension? Get rid of her, get rid of the baby, get it all out of here. Just, just get it out, get it away. She's again manipulating the situation. The situation is now completely messed up. What went wrong? What happened? Alan Ross says, once the way of faith was abandoned and the way of human calculation was engaged, the family was caught up in a continuing change of cause and effect that troubled them for ages. 
What happened? They stopped having faith and started trying to find their own way to manipulate the situation. Try to find their own resolution. And that caused all this tension. We try to do the same thing. Right? We, 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 when we come to these stressful, uncertain times, we try to manipulate the situation. Let's think for a second about in the New Testament, we have Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Ananias and Sapphira in the beginning of the book Acts, the people start bringing their goods to each other and they start sharing with one another. And, and one guy sells all that he has. He sells all his property. He sells all his houses and brings all the money to the church. And the church goes, oh man, that was a great thing. I mean, praise the Lord that you did that. And that's, that's such a generous thing that you did. And Ananias and Sapphira go, man, that guy got a lot of attention. He got a lot of praise for that. Oh, we should do the same thing. All right, let's, let's do the same thing. Let's, get, let's do this. So they sell all they have. They sell their property, right? We made a lot of money on this. Here's, a, here's what we'll do. We won't give all of the money, right? We got a loophole here. We don't, we're not going to give them all of the money, but we'll tell them we gave them all the money. Right? We'll give most of the money to the church, but we're going to keep some of it for ourselves. We made a lot of money off this purchase. What happens? They go to the apostles and said, hey, we sold everything. Here it is. Ananias shows up first. Here's the money. Here's what, here's what we gave. And he says, and what does, how does Peter respond? Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Why would you lie about this? Why are you trying to get our praise and by lying to this? You could have just told us, hey, I sold it for this. It was yours. You didn't have to tell us it was everything. What do you say? Because you lied to the Holy Spirit, because you tried to manipulate the Holy Spirit, you're done. And he falls down dead right there. His wife comes in, right? They go out and bury the guy right away. His wife comes in, Sapphira walks in and said, did you sell it for the such and such an amount? And they go, yeah, that's exactly what we sold it for. Right? They had planned this whole thing. And what does Peter say? The men who just buried your husband are waiting for you. She tried to manipulate and receive God's blessing by this manipulation. The, this couple tried to do it that way and it caused further destruction, their own death in that particular case. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Does anybody else try to manipulate the situation there? Lots of times, but let's focus in on one. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Right, David had stayed behind. All the other warriors were going out, out to war. David stayed behind. And he decides he's going to stroll on his roof during bath time. Right? He wasn't unaware of what was going on. He knew exactly what was happening. And he saw a pretty lady. And he says, I got to have her. Well, that's somebody else's wife. I don't care. I got to have her. Brings her into his home. She gets pregnant. What does he try to do? I got to cover it up. Right? Now she's pregnant. Uh, think about the stressful situation there. I just... I just had an, an affair with somebody else's wife. Now she's pregnant. I've got to get this figured out. Let's say, okay, I'm going to bring the guy home, right? Get him drunk. Tell him, hey, man, go spend some time with your wife. And then he'll think it's his and it'll all be over, right? Good plan. What he didn't count on is that Uriah was way more faithful than he is. Uriah says, my brothers are out fighting. I'm not leaving. Even in his drunken stupor was like, I'm not leaving. I'm not going, how can I go back to my wife right now? Right? And David tries again and again. And he continues to be faithful and it doesn't work. So what does he do next? All right, so here's what you're going to do. When your eye gets back, put him on the front line 
and let him get killed first. Go up to the front line and then step away from him. And he commits murder to try to cover up his sin. That doesn't last very long, does it? The prophet comes to him and says, David, you are the man. You sinned against the Lord. All of his manipulation could not stop what was going on. We do the same kind of things, maybe not in that quite, quite of a dramatic way, but we, we try to manipulate things all the time as well. Our, when, you're, when the church is dying, right? When the church is dying and it's struggling and you see that, that we're, we need to get more people here, what do we say? Well, let's just change the music. We change the music, it'll make everybody come back and we'll be fine. Or we change the pastor and make everybody come back and we'll be fine. If we just do this, if we just do X, Y, or Z, we'll, the, the church will no longer die. Everybody will come back and we'll be able to you know, keep going forever, right? We continue in our own plans. Or maybe someone treats you poorly, says something bad about you, says something mean to you, and you say, you know what? I'm going to get back at them, and that'll fix the problem. If I can just figure out a way to get back at them, that'll fix the problem. All right, maybe you lose your job. And the way your, your plan, your way to manipulate the situation, which doesn't really help either, right? Maybe you sit and you wring your hands and you just stop and say, I can't, I can't do anything about this. I don't know what to do. And you just worry and wring your hands and I can't, I don't know what to do. Or maybe you can, you, uh, you're tight on money. So you say, you know what I'll do? I'll play the lottery. That'll fix it. Right? We're really tight on money. So let me spend some money great plan. Not really, right? Trying to manipulate the situation or maybe in some of the worst instances, you find life to be absolutely hopeless and you begin considering whether or not suicide is the best way out. We also try to manipulate God. You know, Lord, if you'll save me from this situation, I'll do the X, Y, or Z. Or we determine that if we can just impress God, then things will get better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start going to church more. I'm going to start doing this more. God will say, oh man, look at what he's doing. He's going to church more. He's doing that. He read his Bible some more. And I, okay, all right, I get it. I'll give you some more blessings, right? Like we can manipulate God. The problem is that nothing we can do can impress a holy God. And God will not be manipulated by us. If you're trying to save your, if you are trying to save yourself, if you're stuck and you're saying, I got to fix this myself, is there really any hope? The story doesn't end there. The story doesn't finish at that place. Hagar gets kicked out. As we, as we, as we think about narrative literature, when we're looking at things like, like these narratives, these, these stories that are, are, these true stories that are trying to teach us lessons, the, 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 um, when, we do, one of the, when we're studying uh, narrative literature, we need to pay special attention to dialogue. When people are talking, that's usually a, a, an indication that we need to pay attention. Often it's in the dialogue, especially when God is speaking, that we find the meaning and the lesson of the narrative. Here at the height of the tension in the narrative, God intervenes. Not only does God describe what will happen, but he also reveals what should have happened by what he describes. So look at what, he, what happens here. Uh, the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. 
and she's dealt harshly with, she's been kicked out. Think about this. Stopping right there, right? She found her uh, in the spring on the way to Shur. Now that probably doesn't, wouldn't necessarily tell us a whole lot unless we knew where Shur was. What's she doing? She's just been kicked out. She's just been mistreated. She tried to do the same thing that many of us might do. She starts going home. Shur's on the way back to Egypt. She's heading home. Oh, I'm going to go see my mom, Right? I gotta go see, I gotta go home. There are actually many parallels between what's happening here with Hagar and what will happen with God's people when they leave Egypt in Exodus. We don't have time to go through all of those right now. But it's, it, what's interesting here is that the whole situation, remember, remember that this is being written to the original first audience is people that had just been saved out of Egypt. They know that story really well. They experienced it. And now they see this situation and it really flips their entire situation on its head, right? God took the people out of slavery from Egypt and they left and went into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But here we have a woman who has left her slavery in the promised land, left her slavery from the Hebrews left the promised land and was on her way to Egypt. The whole story is backwards. What a mess Abraham and Sarah have made. They've created a situation where the story of God's redemption is flipped on its head. Another couple of things we learn about Hagar that are interesting we'll see in this passage. Hagar here is the only woman to be addressed directly by God in the entire book of Genesis. No other woman is, direct, is addressed directly by God in the book of Genesis except for Hagar. She's also the only woman to call upon Yahweh in, in, in the book of Genesis. She's the only one that speaks to God in the book of Genesis. Well, that's pretty interesting. She also in the entire book of Genesis, never speaks to anyone else, not directly in the text anyway. She never speaks to anyone else but to God. So it makes Hagar an interesting woman indeed. First, we need to understand who's talking to her. It describes this person talking to her as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting uh, area of theology. Who is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is very likely, without getting too much into the debate on here, um, it's very likely throughout the New Old Testament, it's likely a reference to the Son of God. In fact, if you look in verse 13, it's interesting that this angel of the Lord who's been speaking to her, look how she addresses in verse 13. She called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She believes that this angel of the Lord is the Lord. She associates him with the Lord. She says, this is God who's speaking to me. And that's what she talks back to him, how she, well, how she speaks back to him. So she believes it's God. In Revelation, there's actually a couple of times when John tries to bow down to an angel that had been revealing things to him and tries to worship this angel. And in each of those cases, the angel rebuked him and says, he ought not do this because he's just another servant, just like John is. We don't see the angel of the Lord doing that. We don't see him saying, well, don't, don't call me God. <laughs> I'm just another servant like you are. He accepts that praise, accepts that worship. 
Here, however, the angel of the Lord gives no rebuke for Hagar treating him as God. So it's very likely that this is God, and, 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 most scholars, and several scholars would agree this is probably a reference to the Son of God speaking to her. So this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, if you will, speaking to her. Now let's look at what he says. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where, have you, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, why was she running away in the first place? She was running away because it tells us in verse six, Sarai dealt harshly with her. The angel of the Lord says, you know what? She's probably going to treat you harshly still. It's possible. He doesn't promise her that she won't treat her harshly. He says, go back and submit to her. Return and submit to her. Why? Ultimately, what we find is that there's no chance of her receiving blessing apart from being a part of the household of Abraham. Remember, God had told Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. If she leaves the family of Abraham, she cannot receive any blessing, right? Even if she continues to be mistreated, it is only by identifying with God's people that she can receive blessing. She gives no hint of questioning God. She readily obeys. Notice the text. She doesn't ever say like Abraham does. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to make me blessed? How are you going to multiply me? How's that going to happen? What about this? What about this? Well, maybe we could bring Lot into this. Maybe we could use Eliezer. Maybe we could use Hagar. He doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. She never tries to manipulate the situation. She just obeys. She just responds in obedience. The angel of the Lord says to her, verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And again, the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means, it doesn't tell us here, uh, but it says because, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The word Ishmael means the God who sees, or God hears, excuse me. It means God hears. And it says he shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand shall be against, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Why does she obey? Well, look what verse 13 says. It says, She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. She obeys readily. She goes about and, and, just, and just follows in obedience because she learned that God sees and hears her and that is enough. It's enough for her. Whatever persecution is going to come her way, whatever suffering might come about, she knows that God hears her and sees her. And that's enough. She learns the lesson that Abraham and Sarah had yet to learn. If divine blessing is to be fulfilled, you must wait and submit. She obeys because just like the people of Israel in Exodus, God had seen and heard her affliction. The name Ishmael means that God hears. And at the end of the narrative, Abraham names the child Ishmael. 
Abraham names the child Ishmael. Right? Abraham recognized what was going on. He recognized that God heard her and saw her in the wilderness. And he honors that. Hagar apparently carried the news to Abraham, and Abraham obeys what the Lord said. Abraham and Sarah had missed this truth, and their error caused this entire circumstance. It's actually interesting. His son Isaac, who in our text has not been born yet, uh, won't happen for another couple of chapters, but Isaac in chapter 25 didn't miss this truth. He didn't miss this idea of waiting on the Lord, patiently waiting on the Lord. When his wife was barren, when his wife couldn't have kids, instead of taking action against God's will, what does Genesis 25 tell us? He prayed for her. He prayed for her. And that's exactly what Hagar does. But first of all, we should notice it's not, it should not be missed that God brought blessing to someone outside of Abraham's promised line. Right? God had promised blessing to Abraham Hagar was not that promised line. Ishmael was not that promised line. But look at the angel of the Lord still says that you are going to be blessed. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He offers blessing to someone that is outside of Abraham's line, the promised line. Even here we see that God is compassionate toward the nations and offers blessing and salvation to Gentiles. But moving forward, then we see that she, return, she now turns to prayer. In verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. The text does not say that she called upon the name of the Lord. She wasn't asking for anything, but she calls the name of the Lord. She identifies him. You are a God of seeing. Abraham Kuravilla points out that no other character in the Old Testament actually confers on God a name. Only here with Hagar. Her prayer is simple. She doesn't ask God for anything. She doesn't say, well, give me this and then I'll do this. If you, if you give me this blessing, then I'll go back and obey what you do what you told me to do. If I do this, she doesn't try to manipulate the situation. She doesn't ask God for anything. She just rests in who God is. You are a God of seeing. That's it. Her prayer is simple. Then the well she was sitting by, the water she was by, the well. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahoi Roy, which lies between Kadesh and Bered. The phrase Bir Lahoi Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. Everything in her life becomes all about this truth that she has learned, that God sees her and hears her. He has seen her and heard her affliction. God sees and hears you. When you're in that stressful situation, when you're in that, that tough spot and the future seems uncertain, and you're not sure what's going to happen, you're not sure how it's all going to plan out, how, how it's all going to pan out, God sees and he hears. He knows. He's right there with you. And what he calls us to do is to rest in that, knowing that he sees and hears. Just rest in it. As difficult as that may be, just rest in who God is. He's a compassionate God. He's a loving God and he wants you to rest in him 
not try to plan and manipulate the future, not trying to, not try to force his hand to bless you, but to just rest in who he is. And we also see from Hagar that an appropriate response is to pray. To pray. I found that one of the things, one of the biggest benefits of prayer is that it helps remind me that I don't need to have control. Prayer is not about me trying to manipulate God to make him do what I want. Oh, well, you know, I mean, this is the thing that's happening. God, I'm praying that you fix that and get, all, get rid of all my problems and get rid of those things. It's not, I don't see, my, my prayers are not meant to manipulate God as we often think that God is some kind of genie. We pray the right prayers, we say the right words, we go to church the right amount of times and God's gonna be like, okay, well now I'll listen to your prayers. You rub the lamp the right way, now we're gonna listen to your prayers. No, prayer is about saying, God, I don't have control of this. I know that you are a God who can heal. I know that you are a God who can provide. I know that you are a God who sees. You see me now. Help me rest in that. Help me trust you. As Amber brought up this morning, the birds and the flowers are taken care of. How much more will God take care of you? So we see here a contrast of two kinds of faith. We see Sarah with weak faith trying to manipulate the situation. We see Hagar, who actually ends up representing strong faith. She's not perfect by any stretch, right? Her prideful response to her getting pregnant in the earlier part of the narrative shows that. But she, she shows a strong faith that even though this was going on, she says, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do anyway, because you are a God who sees and hears me. We also see in this text, we see these foreshadowings of the gospel, right? We've already seen the text is really reminiscent of, of what we look forward to seeing in Exodus when God frees his people from bondage in Egypt. We ourselves are bound in our sins. We're captivated by its chains. But in Christ, because Christ has died and rose from the dead, because of who Christ is, we can be freed from that bondage. We can be freed from Egypt and taken to the promised land. The gospel is that the very Son of God, the one even speaking here in our text, took on humanity and suffered and died on a cross for our sins, but did not stay dead. He rose dead three days later, conquering sin and Satan and death. And because of that, we have access to life. We can be saved. We can be freed from the bondage of our sin. We have access to power that can help us with our worry. That power of prayer. We have access to that strong faith that we see exhibited and, and, and shown from Hagar. If you're here today and you are a believer, let me remind you, God sees and hears. When you're facing anxiety and worry, God sees and hears. When you're not sure what's going to happen or how things are going to work out, God sees and hears. Take it to him in prayer. Don't spend your time worrying about it. 
Take it to him in prayer. Trust him. Don't try to manipulate the situation either. It's very likely you could make it way worse. Would you trust the Lord? Stop manipulating and start trusting through the power of prayer. Let's close our Sir, let's close this message in a, in a word of prayer and we'll enter into our invitation. Lord, I thank you for what you show us in Hagar and Sarah. Lord, we don't need to manipulate you or to, to try to manipulate the situation, to try to manipulate you, to try to manipulate your promises is foolish. Lord, it just leads to more complications, leads to more death, more destruction. Lord, we each individually have different areas that we could apply this to, but Lord, this right now I want to apply this to our church. God, I pray that we would not be seeking ways to manipulate your blessing here. Lord, you know the state of our church. You know where we're at. God, I pray that you would restore your glory amongst us. God, I pray that we would be obedient to your word in the way we function as a congregation. Lord, I pray we would not try to be manipulating you by the things that we do, Lord, but be trying, but in our, in our attempts to bring you glory and to restore your glory, Lord, it would be your plan that we follow. I pray, Lord, that we would be prayerful about that, that we would know what that is. And Lord, for each of us individually, I pray that you would help us to take our worry, to take our uncertainties, and to bring them to you. Lord, you do take care of us. You do see us. You do hear us. In the middle of our affliction, you're right there, and you see, and you hear. I pray you'd help us to rest in you. In your name.